As an OBGYN physician, I'm frequently asked by friends and family who have pre-teen or early teen daughters when they should first have their gynecological appointment. So in this podcast, we're going to cover the ACOG committee opinion regarding the first gynecological appointment for early teens or adolescents. There is a huge opportunity at the first OBGYN visit to get it right because not performed correctly or if the patient is intimidated, it could forever prevent her from continuing to seek OBGYN care. According to the college, the initial visit for screening and the provision of reproductive preventative health services and guidance should take place between the ages of 13 and 15. Now, from a developmental standpoint, patients of this age may manifest characteristics of early, middle, or late adolescence, so it's important to tailor the discussion based on the patient's emotional and intellectual development. Okay, before we dive into some specifics, we have to set this point straight. It's important when we have a gynecological first visit for a teen or early adolescent that we don't rush them through the visit. Of course, as OBGYNs, everything we do in clinical practice seems to be rushed because we're always trying to get somewhere. However, we have to be able to create an adolescent-friendly environment where they feel non-threatened, non-rushed, and have time to ask questions in confidentiality, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, in a safe and secure format. Because of the depth of the conversations that can be had at that first visit, having this time allotted is imperative because look what things the college recommends at that first visit, an age-appropriate discussion and anticipatory guidance and education about reproductive health topics like pubertal development, normal menses, and the timing of routine gynecological visits should be covered. Of course, sexually transmitted infection prevention and pregnancy prevention have to be discussed as well. Topics like sexual orientation and gender identity and, of course, acquaintance rape prevention are vital to discuss at this first opportunity. Before we get into more specifics regarding this first gynecological visit for the adolescent patient, we have to cover the elephant in the room because it's what most adolescents are afraid of, and that's issues in confidentiality. Well, what does a college and what do other professional societies have to say about maintaining or allowing confidentiality for these teenage or minor patients who go to the gynecologist? Well, the provision of confidentiality and the ability of adolescents to consent for certain health concerns are, of course, the cornerstone of optimal adolescent health care. According to this tenant, information about the adolescent's health care is not disclosed without his or her permission. But remember, they're minors, so it can get kind of tricky. Nonetheless, assurance of confidentiality is important to protect the adolescent's health and safeguard the public health. The major causes of morbidity and mortality in adolescents are due to risky behaviors like sexual activity, alcohol, and substance use, and these can often not be discussed because of fears of confidentiality. But we have to open up this discussion now and be clear about what can and what cannot be left confidential. 
Over the last three decades, research has supported the importance of the provision of confidential health care and illustrated that if not provided, adolescents and young adults will not seek out prescription contraceptives, receive screening and treatment for STDs, or disclose substance use to the providers at their medical visit. Additionally, they will withhold information from their healthcare provider and may not return for subsequent visits. So this is a real problem. During the adolescent years, adolescents transition from children to adults, and clinicians need to support the adolescents' individualization and their development of autonomy. By ensuring confidentiality for certain healthcare concerns, healthcare providers are supporting this crucial milestone of adolescent responsible development by fostering decision making skills. This approach also reflects the physician's ethical obligation to ensure the patient's overall well being. I know we're harping on this for quite a bit, but it really is an important concept in this patient age group. Remember that national medical organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, and the American Academy of Family Practice, and of course, ACOG, have all supported the need to provide confidential care for adolescents. Not only do they call for such care, but they also advocate for education of adolescents and their parents about this importance of confidentiality particularly for evaluation, testing, and treatment of things that could be of public health concern, like STDs. But as in all things, there's a limit to this confidentiality. Adolescent patients should be informed that state laws do mandate reporting of physical or sexual abuse of minors that is disclosed to the healthcare provider. Or if they express desire for self-harm, that confidentiality may not be maintained. I know what you're thinking. That sounds great. And I'm 100% by that. But how am I supposed to convince parents to allow for confidential discussions with the teen or the minor child without their presence? Well, that also is our responsibility. As healthcare professionals, it is essential to educate families, both parents or guardians, and the adolescents on the reasons for clinicians requesting to spend part of the visit with the adolescent alone and starting to do this annually in an adolescent as part of best practice. Adolescents are frequently unaware of where they could obtain confidential services, especially regarding substance abuse and mental health services. Before we jump off this boat of confidentiality, we do have to make a distinction. Remember that we've kind of grouped all minors together. However, not all minors are the same in terms of the law. Under the law, an adolescent younger than 18 is generally considered a minor. However, minors younger than 18 may have acquired legal status under any of the following provisions. They could be called a mature minor, an emancipated minor. If there are incarcerated minors or if they are in foster care, they have different legal status and may consent to their own care without guardian or parent allowance. Now, if a minor status has been designated as any of the ones we've just covered, they may be afforded some of the same legal rights as adults, and this affects the right to obtain confidential health care. So we can leave the issues of adolescent care and what they can and specifically cannot request in confidentiality for another podcast. But as OBGYNs, we have to say something about pregnant teens. 
pregnant teens can consent to their own health care in most states as well as that of their child. So we'll leave it as that because there's a whole other podcast session that we could cover regarding the confidential care and self-determination of pregnant teens. But now that we've covered confidentiality, let's get back with treating the patient at this first gynecological visit. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On to the big question. Do you have to do a pelvic exam at the first visit? Of course, the answer is no, but we'll get into that in just a minute. The primary goal of the initial reproductive health visit is to provide guidance and education. This is vital because it's more of an orientation or an introduction to gynecological care, unless, of course, the patient is symptomatic with some health concern. This visit also allows patients and parents the chance to visit the office location, meet the entire healthcare staff, and alleviate fears and develop trust. There can always be a second follow-up visit for specific concerns if there's nothing acutely presenting at that first time. According to the college, the model first office visit would include an initial consultation with both the patient and the parent together, then a confidential visit between the healthcare provider and the teen or the adolescent patient, and then a concluding consultation with the parent and the patient once again. During the initial consultation with the patient and the parent, the healthcare provider should inform them that the visit does not require an internal pelvic examination, unless, of course, it's indicated, and that the ACOG recommends the first pap smear test at age 21. Many adolescents and their parents are unaware of the difference between a pap test and a pelvic examination, so this is a great opportunity for patient education. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Conversations regarding normal pubertal development and menstruation are important because menarche and subsequent menses are physiologically and emotionally important milestones in the adolescent's development. It's beneficial to educate patients and their parents regarding expectations and normal menstrual variation. Remember, the old rule that a period was every 28 days we now know is not the norm, but there's a large variation in normal cycles. Also, remember that after menarche, it may take one to two years for normalization of the patient's initial and final menstrual pattern. Adolescents should also ask detailed questions along with the parents regarding what is considered too heavy flow and when does a missed period require evaluation. These topics can be done in a group or a team fashion. However, when it is time for the confidential portion of the visit, the healthcare provider should include a discussion of contraception and STIs because some adolescents are and may soon become sexually active. 
47% of females, 47% who are aged 15 to 19 have already engaged in intercourse, which increases with age from 31% of females aged 15 to 17 to 67% of females who are aged 18 to 19. Rates of oral sex are similar, and many teens have also had anal penetration. Healthcare providers should discuss previous sexual activity, including non-coital sexual activity, and ask the patient about her plans for future sexual activity. This offers an opportunity to discuss pregnancy and STI prevention strategies in an anticipatory manner. We need to further explain this whole concept regarding trends in adolescent sexual behavior because sexual norms have changed just in the last decade. Traditionally, it was thought that sexuality was defined as sexual fantasy, masturbation, non-penetrative sexual acts, oral sex, vaginal intercourse, and anal intercourse. But in this new electronic age, other activities must be discussed with the patient to keep them safe, and that includes phone sex, sexting, sex in chat rooms with or without webcams, and yes, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, even the issue of virtual sex, which is simulated sex online by 3D cameras. According to the National Survey of Family Growth, conducted by the CDC, over a year of their most recent evaluation, 13% of 15- to 17-year-old males and 11% of 15- to 17-year-old females had heterosexual oral sex but not vaginal intercourse. That's why it's important when addressing confidentially the needs of a minor or an early adolescent to review the statement that not all sex is just vaginal penetration but includes other activity like oral sex. 14% of students reported sexual intercourse with four or more persons during their lifetime. And remember, we're talking about those under the age of 18. 61% of students reported that either they or their partner had used a condom during their last sexual encounter. The prevalence of having used a condom during the last sexual encounter was higher among males than females. Among the 46% of all sexually active students, 20% reported that either they or their partner had used birth control pills to prevent pregnancy before their last sexual encounter. Again, that's only 20% who had used some form of hormonal contraception. As a reminder of why sexual education is important, it's estimated that adolescents aged 15 to 19 acquire 50% of all new STI diagnoses. Sexually active adolescents are at higher risk of acquiring STIs due to behavioral, biological, and of course, physiological factors. Time for a quick break, and when we get back, let's cover more specifically questions about the examination at this first visit. Regarding the physical examination at that first adolescent or minor's gynecological visit, a general examination, a visual breast exam, and an external pelvic examination may be indicated. But remember, this may also be left for a second visit if required or if the patient feels more comfortable. Now remember that an external pelvic exam, while may be indicated, is simply to help diagnose and stage the tanner stage of development, but this is way different than an internal exam. 
An internal pelvic examination generally is unnecessary during the initial reproductive health visit unless there is a specific presenting acute problem. Now, if the patient has had sexual intercourse, annual screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea is, of course, recommended by ACOG and the CDC. In addition, screening for HIV at least once is recommended. Chlamydia and gonorrhea screening should be done using nucleic acid amplification techniques, and this can be performed using a urine sample or a vaginal swab that's obtained by either the patient herself or the healthcare provider. Vaginal swabs are found to be more sensitive than urine tests, but both have been found to be acceptable to younger patients. As part of a patient empowerment technique, patients should be offered a handheld mirror to see the examination that's being performed if they feel comfortable. This also aids in educating the patient about normal vaginal anatomy and structures. On completion of the physical exam, consultation with the patient should address physical findings, diagnosis, and treatment options. And if the patient is sexually active or is considering becoming sexually active, then contraceptive options, including emergency birth control and the use of LARCs, should be reviewed and provided. Now, once a mutually agreed on treatment plan is established, the adolescent is encouraged to include her parent in treatment planning. Remember that the rules governing contraceptive use for minors can vary based on states. Regarding breast examination, in the past, many experts recommended that adolescents be taught breast self-examination to establish health habits and promote an understanding of the importance as it goes into adulthood. Of course, now, breast self-examination is less required and less recommended compared to overall just simple breast awareness. There is no data to support breast self-examination during adolescence, and there is concern that it may promote unnecessary anxiety, testing, and surgery. However, in a patient who is presenting with specific breast complaints like symptoms of fibrocystic breast disease, a clinical breast examination may aid in the educational process of the patient in understanding normal breast anatomy and her own physical changes to the breast, so a clinical breast exam when indicated could be a good educational opportunity but does not fit in to the usual routine screening practices. As for clinical breast examination screening and their initiation, there really is various opinions, but none of them begin in adolescence. Some recommend starting a clinical breast examination at the age of 20, while others use the age of 25. Currently, according to the ACOG's 2017 review on breast cancer screening procedures, they state that clinical breast examination may be offered every one to three years for women aged 29 to 39 and then annually for women who are aged 40 or over. As we get to the end of the podcast, a quick plug for the HPV vaccine, and there's no financial disclosures to report. This is just good health maintenance. Remember that the FDA has it approved as age 19 to 26 for both males and females with a two-shot regimen until the age of 14 and a three-shot regimen over the age of 15. Remember that even the HPV vaccine has been extended in age from 26 to 45, but as we're talking about the first gynecological visit for early adolescence, this is a prime time to review the importance of the HPV vaccine. That brings us to a wrap. 
Thanks for being a part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.